can't revise for English? Yes, you can. And Mark Roberts shows you how. Welcome everybody to the first ever, the inaugural, if you like, uh, You Can't Revise for English podcast. Um, I'm here with uh, author and all-round uh, Twitter celeb English genius Mark Roberts. Uh, Mark, this is exciting, isn't it? It is exciting. I've been really looking forward to doing something a bit different with the podcast and I think this is the perfect format and I'm very excited about doing it. So... Just uh, for the uninitiated, can you just give us a, a very quick 20-30 second spiel about the book and then why, why, we're good, why we're doing this podcast? Okay, so the, the book, You Can't Revise for GCS English, Yes You Can, um, was really born out of the frustration that most revision guides seem to focus on, on the, just the content. Um, you need to know these poems, you need to know this particular context and so on. And I, I felt frustrated that they weren't really showing students how to revise. So of course there is some knowledge and some content in there, but it's very much this, this focus of step-by-step -step guide, taking you through the course and, and making sure that your revision is ongoing so that you become really prepared uh, in, in effective learning strategies as well as knowing the, the key English content. Okay, awesome. So what, uh, what's the basic structure of an episode going to look like? Uh, so t talk us through what we're going to have. Presumably, we're going to be focusing fairly closely on texts. Yeah, we're going to pick a popular exam text each episode. We're going to invite along uh, a particular expert on that text. Uh, and we're going to look at a, a key passage and we're really going to scrutinise uh, a, sh a short passage. We're going to say a, a lot about a little, really, rather than trying to cover everything in one particular um, episode. And obviously, also, I think we'll, we're going to make a little feature out of you giving a specific revision tip uh, each episode um, for students to use, yeah? Yeah, we'll try and make it practical as possible. So tonight's guest is Sarah Barker, who is a, a, an English teacher and blogger I've much admired for a long time. I, her blog is very much a, a go-to blog. And you also do a, a YouTube um, video as well, don't you, Sarah? Do you want to tell us a little bit something about that? Yeah, hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. Um, I do have a small YouTube channel. It is very small. Um, I've done most of the chapters of Jekyll and Hyde. And, and I think my something I really love about English literature is very much the close text analysis. So um, I was discussing this with a colleague today, actually, the, the, the contrasting approaches of maybe big picture and also very, you know, close up and personal with the text. So my channel is based on that. I've got, I've got some most of Animal Farm on there and a few bits of Merchant of Venice. And it's just, just something I do for the, the students that I teach. But um, I think it's enjoyed by some wider students than that too. If, if people want to find that, where can they find that, Sarah? I'm under Round Learning on YouTube. And just, just while we're at it, hit us your Twitter handle as well, Sarah. Oh, my Twitter handle is not really a, a word that you can say as a word. It's, it's msfax, so it's um, at m-s-s-f-a-x. Excellent. Okay. Um, if you do have any interest in following me, I'm um, uh, JT Litteach on Twitter. And Mark, let's get yours out of the way. At Mr. Underscore English Teach. Okay, splendid. Um, Sarah, before we get stuck into Jekyll and Hyde, uh, in the interest of promoting reading and that sort of thing, um, if, if a student comes to you and says, I want to get into reading, uh, I'm, uh, what, what, what would you recommend them? 
What age are we talking about? Let's hope uh, a year 11 student. The novelist that really um, springboarded me into a love of literature at that age was um, Ian McEwan. Um, I know that this is probably quite an overused text, maybe a bit of a trope that gets wheeled out. uh, But Enduring Love really, really marked me at that age and really opened my eyes to adult literature. So I think that one would be one I'd want them to maybe get into and think about think about the world beyond the, the standard GCSE texts. Yeah, that's a tremendous shout. Yeah, that's that's also a, a text with an amazing opening, isn't it? That you could, you could certainly scrutinise and analyse that in a lot of detail. Yeah, absolutely. But there's so many, so much depth you can go to with with that book um, and and many of his other works too. Excellent. Okay, well, there you go. Go and give that a read if you haven't already. Right, Mark, let's focus on tonight's text then. We're, we're going to do Jekyll and Hyde. Sarah's the expert. Why did you want to pick Jekyll and Hyde as the, the first uh, first text to have a look at? I think it's a, a wonderful text. Um, it, it's short, but, but within that, that very brief text, within that, that novella, there are packed so many interesting ideas um, and, and particularly when we're going to look at this this extract uh, from the, the start of chapter 10 we're going to pretty much focus on the the opening page of chapter 10 um, and it, it, it very much changes as a book when, when you get to at the end of chapter 8 we, we get the kind of the, the, the mystery is solved um, sort of you know we get the end of the action and then we get these these couple of um, epistolary chapters where we find out these statements and we, we find out exactly what's gone on um, but at the start of chapter 10 it suddenly becomes really complex as a as a text I know, I know the vocabulary and the ideas and are quite challenging earlier but it takes on the, this um, this very philosophical uh, nature to it the vocab really goes up uh, a level of, of complexity so I think this is one where we're students often struggle with and there's a lot to unpack. Uh, I love focusing on chapter 10. It's much longer than the other chapters uh, and it's just a very exciting place to start, I hope, for our listeners. The point you make about um, the the action sort of ending at chapter 8 and that effectively being the climax of the story and then the rest of the book is is him unfolding the details we'd missed makes it quite unusual, doesn't it, as a text? Yeah, I think these kind of framing devices and, and this... Uh, playing around with structure and playing around with form, we're bringing in the epistolary nature of it. it it's something where he's, he's experimenting with, with within the genre of, of gothic fiction, and it makes it, I, I think, a much more exciting, but possibly for students, a bit more of a bewildering read. A, a colleague of mine uh, joked that the, the structure of Jekyll and Hyde is why there's never been a good film version, because you just can't recreate it cinematically should we do you want to talk themes of the book first though before we dive into chapter 10 and maybe if i can if i can jump to, to sarah for this initially sarah what what are you say are the key themes in jekyll and hyde that, that, that are prominent um i think this is the sort of thing that students can probably google and get about ten thousand results <laughs> within about three seconds i think thematically obviously we've got duality we've got you know the nature of humans we've got evil we've got nature of mankind London, um, all of all of those themes. I I I think something else that really stands out to me from this book is this idea of detachment. So as I was also um, thinking about this a lot today and and talking to talking to colleagues about it. And as I looked through the opening of this chapter, I thought, goodness, it's the whole novel is very disorientating, and it's almost as though the the novel itself serves to teach us a little bit about the process of narrative 
I don't know if that sounds a little bit convoluted, but the, the novel itself brings us at the very end at the very end of the novel it's only it's only then that everything is brought home to us and we suddenly realize that for the for the last nine chapters we've been thrown into this disorientating process of not really knowing what's going on until until we get to this point and for me that is also um thematically very 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 interesting there's a sudden moment at at the end of the novel where you you feel grounded because you've suddenly seen you know what well, the even the name of the chapter henry jekyll's full statement of the case and it's at that point that everything falls into place for us but i'm not sure that it's clear to us before that point that we've been quite as disorientated as we as we have been so um yeah disorientation to me is is, is a really important one yeah, and and actually that 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 structure is absolutely key in creating that, isn't it? Because we are we are all over the shop until we get to the to the end of chapter ten and see see everything that's been laid out for us. We are all over the shop, but I think that uh, you know, as twenty first century um, receivers of this text, perhaps we are quite used to that kind of narrative disruption. So when we watch films, the, the flashback is quite expected almost. Sometimes we we in in literature predictions and, and and that kind of thing and I think Jekyll and Hyde is quite a special novel because it really subverts the expectations of that linear narrative with a satisfying ending and it's not particularly a satisfying well I suppose it is a very satisfying ending because you're told everything that's happened but it's a it's an unsatisfying ending because we know it to be so supernatural and therefore there's still an elusive nature to the text that's very very difficult for us to grasp and I think there's this kind of narrative play going on by Stevenson where we're left satisfied and yet still kind of thrown into this whirling, disorientating uh, state. I'm really interested. Sarah says there that we, we get the full statement and, and we do to an extent. But I think if, if you look at this chapter, there's something really interesting going on in terms of the, the way that Stevenson euphemizes a, a lot of... Um, Jekyll's behaviour. Um, so it's the full statement. Um, but when we look at some of the some of the quotations that are, that are particularly interesting, where you know the, I, I concealed my pleasures, um, my my irregularities, such irregularities as I was guilty of, he's very careful to to make sure that these these full revelations, this confession, is only confession to a certain extent. Uh, and I think that the the Ian Rankin documentary is really interesting on this, where he talks about the, the context of the writing of the novel um, and how his wife Fanny was apparently disgusted by by the contents of the of the first draft and outraged by the kind of level of detail that had gone into it with this kind of sordid, depraved um, contents of what had gone on, and and apparently this led to Stevenson then burning the first draft and rewriting it. And this sense of, of, I suppose, finally censorship almost, paradoxically makes it more shocking. Because if, if we had a clear indication of this is what, what Jekyll's done, you know, I, I admit that I've been to opium dens, I admit that I've you know, slept with child prostitutes or whatever it may be, or, or that I'm, you know, I'm having an illicit um, homosexual affair or, or any kind of things like this it would make it a really precise statement, a, a full confession. And, and ironically, in leaving it vague and, and hinted at, 
it makes it all the more shocking for your Victorian reader, I think, um, because they fill in the gaps. They imagine and they kind of put their own secret perversions and their own secret lives into those gaps, and it makes it all the more shocking, I think. I don't know what Sarah thinks about that. You know, the word paradoxical that you use, or paradoxically, is, is right, and I, I very much feel that there's this tension of opposites going on in this chapter, especially in, in the opening. Stevenson really brings home to us this, you know, this novel is about duality. Um, but I also felt rereading this opening in, you know, preparing to talk to you, Mark, that Stevenson actually is just describing human nature. So it's given to us as though he's a, it's a confession and it is a confession. But what's he confessing to? He's confessing to being human. All of us have desires inside us that we, we perhaps worry about or um, the temptation to not always make the right choice, or um, this idea of, you know, there's part of us that isn't quite fitting with what we, we want society to see of us. So, of course, there's like this notion of shame and guilt throughout the novel, perhaps more themes there, but and this inevitable hypocrisy of the middle classes. But we've also got in this, in this opening, perhaps just a, re a reflection of what it means to be human. So as you're reading it, as as a reader, we can see ourselves in this. And perhaps that's why his wife's family didn't like it. Because perhaps it's just highlighting, well, this is, this is what it means to be human. We've got these, we have bad thoughts. Uh, we sometimes desire bad things. We've got dual natures. And then... Um, I think it's right in the opening paragraph, he says, I, I was in no sense a hypocrite. Well, don't we all think that about ourselves? And yet we all go ahead with whatever it may be that we know wouldn't be approved of externally. He says, both sides of me were in dead earnest. I think, again, what what human is ever going to say, oh, no, 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 like there's a whole side of me that is it, not sincere. I think here is, is a... Is, it's mirrored, it's mirroring the reader. It's just quite an uncomfortable thought for us to accept that. I think that's, that's a really interesting point because with actually out saying anything at all, humans don't come out of this very well, do they? With, but he hasn't really said anything that he's done. Um, there's there's, there's thing, phrases like imperious desire and concealed my pleasures and that sort of thing, but there's nothing explicit, yet somehow we do fear the worst. Um, and, and that is all in the suggestion, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the repeated reference, I mean, it's always with different language because he's such a, Stevenson's such a master of, of language, but we've got the profound duplicity of life, divide and compound man's dual nature, primitive duality of man. I've just highlighted some of these. And also it is quite dramatic in the language. So he talks about as he drew steadily nearer to the truth, by whose partial discovery I have been doomed to such a dreadful shipwreck. This, to me, seems to veer away from the language in the rest of the novel, maybe the sense of the sudden shift to narrative voice. All of the way through the novel, we've had Utterson, or this third party, and then at the, in, the, in the last two chapters, suddenly that shifts, and we lose our sense of that anchoring of this this one voice that has carried us through and suddenly you as, as you say you're, you're faced with all these letters and documents that you're picking through as though you are the detective and bringing it all together that language shift you talk about is really crucial isn't it because you wouldn't hear utterson say a phrase like 
doomed to such a dreadful shipwreck. It has a, a, an imagination to it that Utterson doesn't have. And we've had this sort of very down-to-earth, reserved narrative voice throughout, and now we're suddenly getting imagery that that surprises us. Yeah, precisely. And I think that the um, narrative voice of Utterson is controlled. We don't get any sense of that kind of navel-gazing that, Je- that, that Jekyll does at the end. And then here he's doom and gloom about his, his own self and, like you say, the, the very kind of stark confession to feeling like a dreadful shipwreck. So that and that repeated, those repeated references to duality are perhaps there to just reinforce this sense that this is in all of us. This is not exclusive to Jekyll. Can I go as far as saying that I, I think um, that's the, the central quotation of the entire novel. I think if, the, if there's one quotation that you take into an, every single exam question, it's, it's doomed to a dreadful shipwreck. And then you can have Man is Not Truly One, but Truly Two is a separate one straight after. Uh, and I think that if, if you look at tracking this motif of the, of the, the shipwreck, I think it, it fits in with, with the idea of broken wood that I've noticed runs throughout the, the novel earlier. So you get at the start of chapter four with the, the Carew murder, where, where the cane uh, is used with such ferocity that it's it's broken in two. And, and there's this real interesting symbolism where half of the cane is left lying in the gutter and the other half is carried away by Hyde. Uh, and also the fact that this cane w- was given many years to many years ago to Jekyll. So there's something there about this kind of passing on of objects that, that seems to hide, that lead to this hiding and concealment and theme of secrecy as well. But then also, so you get that, the snapping of the, uh, of the cane as broken wood, but then also in, in chapter eight, when we get the, the drama of breaking down the, the door to the cabinet, um, that's also very, very symbolic of, of breaking into this kind of private life and, and moving between the, the the kind of open um, public life of Jekyll where, where his servants are and, and this door acts as this barrier and once that's splintered then we get this sense of there's no turning back uh, and by the time we get to the, the shipwreck well, what could be more broken as a piece of wood than a shipwreck and it's a dreadful shipwreck and you can almost with the with the plosives of the doomed and dreadful shipwreck you can almost hear the disintegration of of everything that he's built as an edifice of his of his kind of um of his life of his facade of of respectability those kind of elements of breaking of the wood over time just becomes more and more dramatic uh, and, and to me, there's, there's something there that's worth tracking throughout the novel. And it's, it's a nice idea for students to be able to, to link those um, quotations up and pair those up if they're looking at this as an extract and relating it to elsewhere in the, in the story. Yeah, it's, 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 um, it's powerful stuff, isn't it? And actually, I'm just, re- just rereading it now as you were talking, that, that you can almost feel the hyperbole building um, in, his, in his language to that point. It feels climactic. Can we get uh, specific about some of the, the, the language here um, a little earlier on? Because I'm, I'm just wondering if... It, um, Sarah, you made the point about lots of duality being being demonstrated. I wonder if that's... Can you go as far as to say... Because I'm noticing pairs of things in this opening paragraph. So, for example, um, respect of the wise and good. And then you've got the honourable and distinguished. And then you've got progress and position. And do you think that's a deliberate thing from, from uh, Stevenson? He's, he's trying to set us up for the fact that there's two lots of twos and that sort of coupling being significant the coupling there is is very very clear it's a very very clear uh chapter 
So yes, we have this kind of um, emotive, these emotive elements, you know, the shipwreck, uh, we've also, you know, the beloved daydream, that kind of language, but suddenly everything is clear and there's like a mist is lifted. And I think that this is quite uh, a misty or a foggy novel. I'm not sure if that rings true to you, but I, I physically it's it's misty and foggy you know we're, we're given descriptions of mist and fog it's also misty and foggy in terms of hiding things from us as readers and hiding things from other characters and then there's these murky distinctions between concepts so even conceptually it's quite blurred and i think at the end we get we get to this final chapter where the, the, the fog lifts and everything's revealed and then we start to see these stark contrasts that you've just highlighted James so things start to gain clarity um, in the same way as, as the fog and the mist are clearing. Do you think that's um, uh, uh, representative of Victorian society at the time? A lot's made about the sort of appearance and reality of the Victorian world. Do we make too much of that when we teach this? That does everybody going around having these shadowy existences, um, or, or or do we think that that's a little overblown? I think if if you look at the the context, you know, stuff like uh, in the Five and things like this, and the idea of the the West End gentleman going down to the East End, uh, and there's certainly lots of historical records and lots of um, documentary evidence to suggest that, that this is a, a, a common trope and you do have um, the, these kind of men who are, who are living these respectable um, lives and then going down and doing all kinds of dubious stuff um, and as well as the the idea of going back and looking at, at doctors and, and, and Dr John Hunter who apparently Jekyll's house is, is based upon um, and th this idea about the, for for what us might be seen as a, a very upstanding, trustworthy profession at that time, being involved in some very murky activities. So I, I think that, that there's a lot to it in terms of context that it's, this makes it realistic. The the ranking documentary talks quite a lot about that house, doesn't it? Because um, the, the the it had the two entrances, didn't it, and the the back door and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, if if you if you go on the British Library website, that there's an actual drawing of the house that you can find, which is fascinating, and a little little hand drawing that, that shows you the little um, operating theatre, surgical theatre, and 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 the, the kind of back door where they're bringing the the bodies from the resurrectionists and so on. So yeah, I think there's plenty to be getting your teeth in terms of contextual realism in the novel. And obviously we'd, we'd recommend people going and digging out that ranking documentary, wouldn't we? I think we'll, we'll, we'll see if we can tweet a link um, at some point. Yeah, it's very useful. I, I, it was taken down at one point. Hopefully it's, it's back there, but I, I found it incredibly useful. I think also the um, there's a universality to, to the text. So yes, the Victorian, you know, the nature of Victorian life and the necessity of keeping yourself respectable in public, perhaps we don't feel that to the same extent today. But I think the uh, notion of public persona and private life is still very much a real facet of society and, and the way that we live. And perhaps we can we can see that in this novel and think, well, that that was no doubt the case before you know the Victorian era and undoubtedly post and um, perhaps some of this uh, privacy we see is more pronounced in this novel but I, I I do think that you know people hide themselves online in the ways that uh, you know perhaps we can see a little bit here with um, Jekyll's desire to be hide and 
in the same way that we get anonymous keyboard warriors in 2021. So all sorts of applications to modern life too. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Okay, so uh, can we talk for a minute about uh, the returning to that narrative voice? We talked briefly about the differences between Utterson and Jekyll, but uh, um, is the the specifically the use of personal pronouns? Does that open us up to more interpretation, Mark? There's, there's a big question um, that I think students have to grapple with and, and teachers and critics will, will argue about this because it's such a complex and interesting uh, novella. Um, but there is an argument that, that at this point we get Jekyll's voice, we get Jekyll's point of view, and we don't ever in, in the novel hear from Hyde. And, and it leads some people to say, well, there is no Hyde. You know, Jekyll is Hyde. Um, and... and even with the the kind of supernatural elements to it, there's an argument to say that that it's just a a kind of a smokescreen for what is effectively just Jekyll's persona in terms of acting out what he wants to do. And, and I suppose that, that if you if you did take that viewpoint, that the, the use of the first person pronoun is 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 a good evidence here within that argument. I think I agree absolutely. I mean something that really stands out for me is um i think i meant i mentioned it briefly earlier but this idea that all the way through we've got utterson we've got the occasional third person narrator and then when we get to lanyon and then in chapter 10 jekyll um this repeated use of i is in- incredibly stark contrast to, to to what's come before and rather than speculating on what on earth Jekyll is doing, and indeed Hyde, we've suddenly got the uh, direct narrative from from Jekyll in this chapter, um, and yet we never hear from his we never hear from his other self. Um, so there's like a, there's an absence of Hyde there, which obviously adds to this supernatural element. There's this kind of shadow of Hyde in in the novel which we we can never quite get get hold of but i also think that we've got a sense that hyde perhaps lives on in 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 all of us well that feels like as good a point as any to uh to, to draw a line under the discussion it's a pretty bleak tone to finish on but um uh, uh nevertheless it does feel like a, a, a neat a neat end point um so uh Try and start a feature for these podcasts, Mark. Give us a uh, what's your revision tip? Uh, what's your what's your first one? What are you going to give people? Um, you can't revise for English, or can you? You can, um, but rather than, than talking about an effective learning strategy, I just want to talk about mindset to begin with. Uh, I'm not talking growth mindset. I'm talking about the fact that um, colloquially, eating the frog is the phrase, I believe, and and this idea that if there's something that that is bothering you, some kind of worrying poem or a particular theme or a particular character or or extract within something that you're studying you need to tackle it first and and what I think a lot of students make the the classic mistake of doing is is studying things and revising things that they already feel reasonably comfortable with Uh, and what I'd I'd urge um, students to do is to make sure that you tackle the things that scare you the kind of stuff that uh, Jekyll-like keep you up at night um, making sure that you you go for those and it probably won't be as bad as you think, um, but at least you will know what you've got to do if you've got massive gaps on a particular area. So get stuck into it first. 
Eat the frog. That's your. Eat that's the frog. tip number one. Eat the yes. frog. Yes. Excellent. Um, okay, this has uh, been enormous fun. Thank you very much, both of you, for your time. Sarah, in particular, thank you for joining us um, for that. It was brilliant. Um, and I'm sure, uh, given the opportunity, we'll have you back at some point because um, that was uh, that was lovely. Thank you. Um, okay, well, that's us done. We hope you'll join, you, join us again. Um, we're we're going to try and, and flood the internet with these bad boys, so we'll see how we get on. Um, uh, but uh, for now, thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Mark. Um, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. You can't revise for English. Yes, you can.